Welcome to biota.org chat. I'm Tom Barblay, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Joe Riem. Joe, unfortunately you missed out on the initial podcast because you had a text interview with biota.org. Right. But for people not familiar with your work, can you please give some introduction to your interest in artificial life, your early development, and what you're working on today? Sure. Well, as I said in the text interview, I got started just by seeing some interesting displays of artificial life. Uh, one particularly I remember was at the Minnesota Zoo, or the Minneapolis Zoo in Minnesota, which was just a, a simple ecology program, and it just it really got my imagination working. I was very young then. And around maybe middle school or high school, I uh, started playing with some shareware Mac programs that I wanted to, you know, be able to, they let you tweak somewhat, but I wanted to be able to tweak it more, and so... Eventually, when I got to college, started uh, rewriting or, you know, re-engineering some of the, those concepts and, and building my own version. And uh, that's where BIOTS started. BIOTS is sort of a several generations past a uh, re-engineering of a program called Vivarium, which was by a man, man called uh, Ryan Koopmans, who doesn't seem to be around on the Internet anymore. He had a company called eBrains.com, and he put out two or three sort of A-life associated games that uh, really grabbed my imagination as a kid, so I sort of picked up that torch and, and carried it on. Now, you're developing something new after Biots. What, what, what is this called, and how does it relate to Biots? It's called Trilobot, and it's, a, it's built as a genetic algorithm shooter, or a or sort of Galaga clone, or Galaga-like game. You know, a very simple 70s, 80s style arcade game that evolves the abilities and programming of the enemies using a genetic algorithm with a fitness function. Um, it actually uses three fitness functions because I wanted to sort of experiment with uh, cast evolution. So I have three separate fitness functions going on in the whole population, and, uh, and uh, as you play the game, it diverges into three casts, which have different programming and, and appearances and abilities. The reason I decided to start to do this was because BIOS was sort of a thing you just sort of sat back and watched, and a lot of A-Life is that way. And it's very interesting to me. I can sit there and stare at it for hours, but it's not really engaging to the general populace. Whereas BIOS is sort of, you can interact with it a little bit. You have kind of a caretaker role. You can, you know, fuss with the ecology, add zombies and fire and things like that. But Trilobots, you're right in the middle of it. You're really experiencing the, uh, the world that these artificial creatures live in. And uh, you're put at an adversarial role against them. And that way, the game sort of encourages you to make life hard for them, and which encourages them to evolve. So is the use of the selection pressure in this regard? Yes. It's, well, it's a, yeah, it's a genetic algorithm, and there's a varying degrees of, of you know, things that give each cast points. For instance, the attacker cast will get lots of points if they actually end up killing you, but that's pretty rare, especially later on in the game when you've got lots of armor and shields. So they'll also get some points for even hitting you, and they'll get some points just for firing a weapon. That way it kind of encourages them to evolve incrementally. You can't just expect it to give them a random program and for them to perform well, and especially in a game setting. A lot of early testers said that, you know, they, the Trilobots didn't do anything. They just sort of sat there and maybe moved around or spun around a little bit. They evolved some toughness, but they didn't really fight back, and it wasn't that fun. So you have to kind of cheat a little bit and, and uh, encourage things that you know will lead to interesting behavior later on in level. So you've touched on two very interesting things. The first relates to user interface. 
and the second relates to how artificial life can kind of merge into game development. If we can start with user interface, how important as an artificial life developer is user interface, and what lessons have you learnt developing user interface for an artificial life game? Yeah, interface is one of those weird things because you don't need any interface, really, to sit back and have a virtual ecology just sit there and run. But to grab most people's attention, they want to be able to play with it. So you give them maybe some things that they can tweak and run the simulation in different ways. And that's actually you know, why I wrote BIOS in the first place, is because I wasn't given enough options in Vivarium. So but BIOS never really, was never able to really build the interface. I just never had that much Java experience. I wasn't that good a programmer when I started it. And I work developing learning games now professionally, so I'm a lot better programmer than I was when I started. So I was able to work on the, the interface a lot more in Trellobot to make that more of a, a central thing. And, and basically, it's, it's, do you, are you writing this for yourself or are you writing this for the general public? And uh, one of the ideas from Trellobot is going to be that the genetic algor- algorithm is actually going to be shown as it's working between levels. Maybe it'll give, give users the option to, to view it if they don't want to, they don't have to. And that sort of comes from a discussion on the mailing list we had where I think actually I asked, were there any A-life programs out there designed to teach concepts in evolution. Do you think the player gets a sense that they're actually participating in an artificial life game? Well, I, I tell them right away that they are. So I'm not sure. My guess is that they maybe wouldn't just playing it. They'd maybe say, what's going on here? Maybe if they played it a few times, they'd see that it's different every time they play. But for those people that do know and maybe have some inkling as to what evolution is, will we'll say to me things like, wow, that was, that was really cool. I, I let one of them hit me, and then all of a sudden, the next generation, they were all firing firing weapons at me. You do have a sort of palpable control over their evolution. So in prefacing that it is an artificial life game, if you said it wasn't an artificial life game, and it just had these evolutionary components, do you think people would still come back to the idea that it, it had an artificial life background to it? I think so. I don't think a lot of people know the term artificial life. They might think artificial intelligence. They might just sort of see the randomness happening. I've, I've played a lot of games that have a couple artificial life components that don't come out and say it. So, I, yeah, I think they would. Probably, what, 18 months ago now, in a similar time frame to your original interview, I interviewed Andy Phelps. And what I found fascinating with that interview and the feedback that I've received is that a lot of people in the game development community would like to see more artificial life, perhaps in an SDK form, or perhaps in research that can aid contemporary game development. What's your thinking with regards to an explicit SDK for artificial life in games? I don't think an explicit SDK is going to grab the public... And the reason why is, I'm going to say Flash. Uh, Flash is an SDK that everyone is picking up, like 15-year-olds are picking up and trying, and they're, they're producing a lot of crap, but they're, they're trying to learn programming because of Flash. And I think, well, it's not great for artificial life because it's very slow, and maybe ActionScript 3 will start to fix some of those problems. It's, it's a big gateway right now for programmers. That's one of the reasons I decided to release Trilobots now to make it a game and to make it open source is because I figure there are people that have a that have a handle on Flash that aren't real programmers, they don't have a computer science background, but they, they can look at Flash code and kind of figure out what's going on. I mean, I'm not going to, obviously, it's ridiculous to, to just say something's a bad idea nowadays because you'll always be proven wrong, but I don't see a A-Life SDK really taking off right now. Are you familiar with ODE at all? ODE? Yeah. No. It's a 
basically a physics engine with a heavy calculus and independent object component to it. Uh-huh. And uh, I guess there are things that are analogous as well in graphics, perhaps Ogre. So my thinking with regards to an artificial life SDK has always been similar to those things. And I think, although I'm never really clear in correspondence, this is what a lot of these games folk would also like to see with artificial life. So it's not something that would be applicable necessarily to a 15-year-old developer, but it may be applicable to someone who's doing like NASA simulation like Bruce Damer or someone uh, like John Klein who's doing, you know, academic entities. Do you think there could be a need for an artificial life SDK in that realm? Sure. I mean, I... I guess my my sort of area of perception right now is, is web games. I don't really have, I, I've never really had the latest computer, and you know, I've been listening a lot to Ralph, to Ralph Coster, who's very big on, you know, here's, here's the, the new gaming is, is on the web, and casual gamers, more people who are not hardcore gamers play these little games on the web, and I think things like Flash or maybe Processing, which is the sort of a training wheels for Java, open that up to a lot more people. There's always going to be room for the hardcore great physics engines and 3D stuff, and that might even become more popular and prevalent as computers get faster and faster, but, I mean, yeah, I think there's room for that, but sort of where my my uh, vision is right now is, is just stuff happening on the web. For people not familiar with the term casual gaming, can you give some definition to it? Well, um, casual gamers are people that don't necessarily have all of the latest consoles and don't buy all the latest PC games. They sort of you know, there's lots of just games available on the web. Some that even some of the most popular games that, that end up being for sale, someone will write a knockoff in Flash in a couple of days or, or take a, on a similar idea and maybe even come up with something better in a few days. So there's all these games on there for free. Their revenue is advertising-driven. Yeah, casual gamers just will, will... Maybe they'll buy a console a year or two old. Maybe they'll pick up a game or two for it, but mostly they'll play a few games on the web. And it's not part of their entire life so-called hardcore hobbyist gamers. I'm not sure if you followed Innate Reality when I contacted the MSN casual gaming third party, but I think there seem to be a number of definitions currently of casual gaming. And it's fascinating, depending on who you talk to. I mean, if you talk to the MSN folk, then it's the kind of thing that only medium-sized companies could ever get involved with. But I think what you're describing is actually something that anyone could basically write a, a casual game. I mean, this is what you're saying. Are you familiar with the website Congregate? I think so, yeah. It's, it's sort of built as the YouTube for games, and that's it's literally it's a games, ma- games made by everyone for everyone. It's, it's uh, just Flash and Shockwave right now, but... Thousands of games are up there by hundreds of developers, and, you know, not all of them are great, and most of them are people that are just doing that, writing the game as a hobby. There's just a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of websites that sort of collect games made by different developers and share some advertising revenue. I'm not sure how much money is is, uh, actually in it for the developers, but the site seems to be doing pretty well. Writing games right now is, you know, it's almost back to the one person in a garage thing it was in 1988. It's interesting. There's a lot of uh, sort of a lot of love for retro style games too. Can you talk a little bit about the casual gaming community that you've described and the kind of feedback that comes through that, the kind of self-critiquing and critiquing by others, and how artificial life developers could learn from that? Well, it's definitely a gauntlet right now. I've just up- uploaded a game I wrote a little while ago, not artificial life related, to congregate and. You know, the tiniest bug is, is just sort of raked over the coals, and, and you definitely get a lot of, of feedback, which is constructive. I mean, but, you know, these are like 15, 
16-year-old kids. They're not really uh, pulling any punches there. So uh, my guess is I haven't tried putting Trilobots up there. It's certainly not ready from a gameplay standpoint. My guess is that they're going to complain about the gameplay. They don't care about the interesting artificial life that's going on back there. And if, if you look at even the big game companies that have tried to do artificial life or AI, I think that's the best example. Black and White or BC, which never was never even made, was supposed to have... Uh, the sort of actual ecology running in the background as you play the game, but it never made it. I think that if you're writing a game, you really have to be focusing on gameplay. I'm doing Trilobots as something academic, and I hope it, it turns out to be a good game. But artificial life in a game just doesn't work as a gimmick enough to get someone to, to play it unless the game is also there. I've written a bit with regards to putting artificial life programs on download sites, just general download sites, and most of the cutting but also quite constructive feedback that I've received with regards to Noble Ape has come through commercial download sites that have shareware and freeware and commercial software altogether. In terms of this kind of organic critiquing by 15-year-olds kind of thing, what can the developer take away immediately from that? Well, they're going to take away the, the big thing about trying to put a, a life in a game is that you have to fake a lot of it. You can't, you can't make it really academic, really real. You're not going to be able to do all the interesting experimentation that you want to do uh, if you just have this little, little ecology that you run. You've got to be grabbing the player. You've got to hold their hand for the first level, and then you've got to let them go, and you've got to challenge them. People will complain if it's too easy, if it's too hard. I'd say the biggest problem right away is people aren't going to know what's going on. They're going to feel frustrated because they're not going to know what they're supposed to be doing. A lot of people have tried to buy out told me that they couldn't keep the animals alive. I tried to explain them that point. You know, you don't get evolution without competition, starvation, and death. You can't keep all of the animals alive. It's an interesting idea what you actually need to give a user in order to explain an artificial life program from the get-go. And I think certainly my own experiences with Noble Ape, I tried movies, I tried a wide variety of different kinds of interactive documentation. Now I kind of rest almost on podcasts as a means of explaining that to people. In game-making, uh, especially in educational game writing, the best tool is an interactive demo, or a or sort of a, your, uh, not interactive demo, uh, tutorial. So the tutorial is actually gaming. It walks you through, it says, do this, you do this, you instantly get feedback of what you did. Sort of walks you through all the steps you're supposed to do, and then just lets you go. So that kind of training will approach the first level, I think, is useful in, in almost any game. It's hard to do. Sometimes you you build this game around the game, and you haven't really worked around forcing the player to do certain things at certain times. You keep that in mind ahead of time, so it becomes easier. When you encounter a game in a similar genre to one that you played previously, do you normally use the interactive tutorial with the game? It depends. After writing more games, I tend to try and, and like view all the content that the, the programmers provided me just as a courtesy. My instinct is just to try and jump in and figure it out as I play, and that's really fun. If, if you don't know how to play the game, you don't even know what the controls are, you just push start and hit buttons and you'll, you'll figure it out. Maybe you'll die right away, and then you'll go back and look at the controls and see if there's some other things you were supposed to be doing. So, yeah, it depends. If games are similar, you'll almost certainly just try it. And I think you, as a, as a writer of a game, you have to expect that a lot of your audience is just going to try it, and if it doesn't work right away, they're going to move on because there's a hundred other games that they've got on the list that they want to try. I found interactive mouse cursors with Noble Ape gave people, when the mouse cursors changed, when they moved them over the window, 
when they moved to rotating arrows and things like that, people started using the interface very differently. In terms of subtle user interface components, what insight have you had in your development to date? Yeah, moving, changing mouses is a good example. Other user, user interface, subtle user interface components know where the user's eye is going to be at all times and try and make something happen there. Or if something's happening off on the side of the screen, it changes color pretty instantly uh, or pretty dramatically. So, you know, if, if you want to tell the user they did something right in a game, you will not only do you increase their score in the little score box that they don't look at all the time, you make a little, like, you know, number appear right where whatever happened that they did right was. You know, move up and fade away. You've got to really hold them by the hand. You've got to make the, the game world really give them all of the information that you as a developer think they have anyway. And that really helps to have a lot of user testing. A lot of friends who are willing to tell you what's wrong with your game. Or as you've described, put it online and have a whole team of 15-year-olds do exactly that for you too. Yeah, well actually I recommend giving it to your close friends first. They'll be a lot nicer about the, the, the first round and then the, you can let the nitpickers nitpick. Especially on Congregate, you've got that, you've got your game writing happening real time. People aren't probably going to come back and rewrite it when you fix the issues that they've complained about. Shifting gears almost completely, in your original Biota interview, you talked a little bit about the archetype of the artificial life hobbyist. Maybe not explicitly, maybe slightly implicitly. But can you discuss that a little bit, please? I mean, I, I don't know about everyone else, but I get the impression that people are, they have their noses in their own projects. I think lately, I, I think thanks to, in, in large part to Biota, People are starting to peek out and look at other people's projects and see that as a vibrant community that's actually doing something. But I think for the most part, people are really invested in their own projects. And if they're not thinking about their own projects, they're not thinking about artificial life at all. Maybe when someone's going to start writing something, they'll look around and see what's out there already. I know I looked for a genetic algorithm shooter for a while before I bothered to write one myself. Yeah, I don't see a lot of, of interactivity, at least when it comes to working on projects, and I know that you've probably got some people helping you with uh, Noble Ace and you're helping with uh, Darwin at Home. What interests me with the idea of the artificial, the archetype of the artificial life hobbyist is prior to about 2002, I didn't actively recognise it. It took Dave Kerr initially contacting me, and Dave Kerr and I haven't ever met. <laughs> when he contacted me just over probably a year's period just comparing notes... We had both read almost identical books growing up. We both had done so many things that were similar. And meeting other artificial life hobbyists, I started to realise that there was, as you say, actually an archetype. And what fascinates me is I find it very difficult to map that onto other things. Now, if you've heard in Ape Reality, I've talked a bit about, you know, engineering hobbies like people that are model train enthusiasts and things like that. Sure. But I find it very difficult to find a similar real-world archetype to the, the artificial-life hobbyist. Do you have any insight with regards to that? I mean, maybe not, yeah, not real-world. There's certainly, you know, Dr. Frankenstein, which we all have to deal with, that sort of fiction, you know, fictional artificial-life developer. I think one of my biggest complaints about a lot of science fiction is how anti-technology it seems to be, starting with Frankenstein, sort of. But, yeah, I, I really don't have any other uh, examples. If you look historically at artificial life, the archetype of the distant hero, the character who is very well known in their particular field and then writes a little bit on artificial life, and there are half a dozen to a dozen of these people, 
and they're no longer in the discussion, but they're still greatly admired. In doing what I do with Biota, I try to contact them, and, and a number of them are completely non-contactable. I know they're still living and breathing, but it's very difficult to think of them in a way where they can re-enter the conversation. But what fascinates me is the archetype of the artificial life hobbyist is someone who is basically a kindred spirit with the other artificial life hobbyists, whereas the distant hero is really about their own particular work and what they're staking in their own particular area. So it's very difficult for them to reintegrate and re-link back into a community. So what I found doing what I do with Biota is that there are so many kind of kindred spirits, and as you say, are slightly sideways curious, like to know what's going on elsewhere and like to get some ideas and like things to percolate. Hopefully in the foreseeable future, more of us will get together and start small-scale moving into medium-scale collaboration. But it begs the question, when you get a group of ideologically divergent, different areas of technical, some dealing with Java, some dealing with Flash, others dealing with, you know, low-level C and these kind of things, what will actually be created? How do these people come together? What's what's your thinking on that? A lot of us are in very... We're, we're all ultimately artificial life, but we're doing very different things. I mean, I know what I'm interested in simulating is population and population dynamics and somewhat interaction with environment and behavioral evolution. And I, that's not what I see in a lot of other things. I, I guess that means that there's room for one person to build part of, you know, one level of, of an artificial world while someone else moves up and builds another. But you need the tools for that, really. And you have to all agree on, on the tools to start out with. We're in a time right now where the, I mean, Web 2.0 is a really powerful thing. And it's really made the web a different place than it was originally. Um, it's very connected. The fact that there's podcasts, the fact that there's RSS feeds really makes the, the web more like a living space than just sort of a, a page thrown up there and left to rot for years. So I think maybe as technology, information technology moves more in that area, more standards, you can see something happening. But uh, I think we're sort of waiting to ride on the back of some kind of wave, some kind of new technology or new information paradigm that we can put life into. But, you know, as, as I said on, on the uh, chat list, life is this sort of pattern, it's this sort of data structure, and it can fit in any kind of medium. And we just have the, have the right medium that we can all work in, I guess. It's an interesting contemporary paradigm, the idea of Web 2.0, and it's something that I think about with regards to the history of Biota and the Biota conferences in particular, that we've moved from these gatherings of people where they actually went into a pub and argued and did things like that and looked in each other's eyes to a different dynamic. Can you characterize this different dynamic in contrast to getting together for conferences? I usually just sit in the back room in conferences and, and occasionally will pipe up. I'm a lot more vocal when I can sit and type something down, think about what I'm about to say before I say it. I, I guess the, the interesting thing about Web 2.0 is that it makes, it's, it's a step up from the early web, making it more conversational. Podcasts, especially the ones that are formatted as a bunch of friends sitting around talking about an issue and you listen to it and you're kind of the, the, the guy in the, in the corner or the quiet friend listening to what they're saying, brings back a lot of that conversational debate structure, personality to convey information. And the fact that a lot of websites can interact, you know, Google's got all these tools that broadcast their, their RSS or... You know, you've got Google Earth, which people have put into several different games already. You've got RSS 
could make a game world that pulls RSS feeds and then generates content based on the real internet. It's something I've been thinking about recently, but I don't have time for another project. Doing the Biota podcast, doing Ape Reality and these kind of things, I find that there is a finite group of listeners that have the technical expertise in order to subscribe to a podcast, and then there is the rest of the world. And I seem to feel that the group of people that I'm communicating with, in some regard, remains relatively stagnant. Now, it is growing progressively, but I do get the sense that we are uh, hyper-intellectualizing currently, whereas the rest of the world is not part of that conversation. And when you bring new people into the conversation, or perhaps historical people or things like that, they are not part of that hyperization that occurs in this Web 2.0 environment. Can you talk a little bit about that? We're in a very transient point right now, and I think it's all about ease of entry. And I think the easier you make it for someone to interact with your site, your content, the more people you'll have. Really, that's it. You, you create these insular groups, but they can grow and shrink, they can stagnate. You have to have new blood because people will always move on. They'll, they'll think of some other pursuit they want to follow. Now, I don't really have a, a great insight into that, but you know, I'd say it's all about ease of entry. And uh, that's not exactly what you're asking. I think it's an interesting problem, and it's one that strikes me frequently, particularly through stuff that comes through the Grey Thumb blog and stuff that we talk about in the Biota Conversations mailing list, that we are, in some regard, a very insular group in terms of our kind of communication. Occasionally, you have these articles published, like Artificial Life is Going to Be Real in Three to Ten Years, and the Weizmann uh, Institute in Israel discovers that if you vary things in some way, evolution happens faster. I mean, Artificial Life developers have known that for years. And yet, somehow, we're not actually communicating that, even with the scientific community, and then the broader community. They bothered to publish the paper. <laughs> I think when, when you're a hobbyist, you, you maybe read about what you found in your blog, but that's about it. It's an interesting paradox in some regards, that the people that do it and have a passionate interest and develop it in some regard as the hobbyist are maybe not looked down upon, but not actually recognised by the academic. Now, the distinction between the way a hobbyist does something and the way that academic does something is quite great. I mean, academia, in some regard, is about doing research that enables future funding for future research. And a hobby is about a blind, sometimes completely irrational passion, which is, you know, self-maintaining in some regard. So they do have different means and different ends in that sense. People like Jeffrey Ventrella are good examples, and John Klein as well, are people that have been both hobbyists and had some movement into academia. But what is your thinking in terms of the communication from the hobbyist artificial life community into the academic artificial life community? My feeling is that it's pretty much one way in that, you know, I read science blogs, so I find that stuff. I don't know about any people doing research in A-Life that are looking at the hobbyists what's the hobby going to offer? They're not doing the, the real research, right? But, I mean, on the other hand, even people in academia doing any kind of computer, computer simulation are looked down upon by a lot of academia. There's just a big to-do I'm not entirely familiar with about some mathematicians deriding proofs using computers. So, like, what, what real science can you do with a computer simulation of life anyway? You're not really figuring anything. You're perfectly right. Even within academia, there are problems associated with what would be contemporarily called academic artificial life. 
I don't know if you've read any of the Artificial Life journals that Mark Boudot and related folk put out, but what fascinates me reading the journals, and I've gotten subscriptions for others, and if you'd like a subscription, I'm more than happy to get you one, sure. is that the development that they're doing in many regards is, because it's associated with projects that have a finite length of time, is in many regards a lot more kind of slapdash even than the way the hobbyist would do it. They're doing very small iterative cycles. And when I have had the opportunity to talk with academics and demonstrate Noble Ape, they are fascinated with aspects, as you described, with regards to the user interface and things like that. And the, the general level of polish that they don't do in their own development because it's associated with very finite parcels of time. Yeah, well, if you put a cute face on something, people are going to think it's alive, even if it's just a stuffed animal. So that has, that has a lot to do with uh, how it's at least perceived by the public. But I think there's something that academics are receptive to as well in terms of the interfaces that are developed. I mean, this was ultimately what I saw in some of the earlier Biota conferences was a meeting of some of the hobbyists and some of the academics. And from that, it kind of spiraled off for maybe three to five years' worth of development, co-development, and then went in separate directions. To date, the way I've done it is just get people subscriptions to the Artificial Life Journal with the occasional promise that they will actually write for it. Uh, but I've also corresponded quite a bit with Mark Bedeau about getting the aesthetics of contemporary Artificial Life hobbyist development into the Artificial Life Journal. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the SIGGRAPH publications, the ACM SIGGRAPH. Yes, yeah, someone. So they, they actually have hobbyist digital artists that submit yeah. work. Yeah, we get their journal at, at work. So, I mean, I think something analogous could happen with regards to the Artificial Life Journal, but, you know, this ultimately will require, you know, a, a lot of submissions and basically Mark Bedeau's in-tray piling up with regards to Artificial Life art generated by hobbyists. But I think there are a number of kind of sideline ways that we could actually re-communicate with the, with the academic community. In terms of the Web 2.0, you've mentioned you're reading science blogs. Do you see something like, for example, the Grey Thumb blog as being a way that hobbyists could interface with academia? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's sort of a public forum, right? Well, at least the comments section. So you're going to get some trickle of information, but on the other hand... There's that, that sort of rule where everyone's participating, 90% of it's worthless. So I admit maybe it's not true for, for Graython, but in general, in, in Web 2.0, you've you really got to have some, some kind of filter there. So I don't know whether people are sort of programmed themselves to shut out most ideas from people that they, they don't trust yet. But that's, yeah, definitely that's, that's a good place to start. Yeah, there is this forum thing, which I, I'm characterizing as a forum, which you regularly find the most outspoken people that have the least reasoned opinions. It strikes me as really surreal that oftentimes the forums and the areas and this kind of web... I don't think forum technology is necessarily web 2.0. No. But in these kind of interface environments. And I think that discourages a lot of people that have genuine insight or want to be part of a discussion. What's your thinking in the most ideal medium in order to get this kind of conversation going? You let anyone contribute, but you have an editor who looks at comments first. Maybe looks at comments first, but at least weed their comments later and just remove things that are not contributing. I really wish sites like Wired would do this where there'll be an article on something and they'll just turn into an argument at the end of it. It's always the same argument and it's always just people calling each other names and 
there's no actual discussion there. And the entire point of, of letting users comment, not just so that they can feel like they have a, you know, a place to, to stream on a soapbox, but the point of, of Web 2.0 and the point of having everyone contribute to that content is to get real feedback and to get real discussion. You don't get that if you've got this sort of abusive uh, environment going on. You have that in a lot of really popular technology blogs and a lot of really popular game blogs. And, and I love the, the free speech idea of the web, but just a little bit of, of uh, editorial control to curtail abuse, you know, abusive dialogue and things like that would be very useful, I think, if maybe get some real discussions happen. I'm going to date myself with this comment, but I had an article written on my work, Slashdotted, in, I think, 99. And what struck me from that was almost every post on Slashdot itself was completely deriding and abusive with regards to me. And they went out of their way to look for just really obscure stuff that other people had written and this kind of stuff. And they didn't really understand what Nobelite was, but they decided to post anyway. And in stark contrast to this... Everyone who emailed me based on the article and the Slashdot discussion was very, very positive and upbeat. And that's always struck me that on one side, you have a group of people that are just displaying for public. Yes. They're just performing in public. And then you have a group of people that are far more interested in communicating in private. And I think that's a very interesting distinction, and it's going to be something that's you know, interesting to see how it develops in a kind of Web 2.0 methodology. Yeah, there's the downside to either entry. And as I said, a friend of mine is actually an editor on Slashdot, and his job is to get abused daily by commenters. And I, I think you'll, you'd find that the majority of people that read the site really enjoy what he writes, but the majority of people that post really... It's, yeah, it's awful. It's hard for me to read, and it's hard for me to read wired blog posts because it just turns into an argument, and I have to stop myself from even piping up because I know it's just pointless to, to get into discussions that, that are just people showing off. Slashdot comes from your part of the world, doesn't it? Yes. Okay, Joe. well, we've, we've had a wonderful chat. Is there anything you'd like to talk about to conclude this? When you mentioned that we could talk about a life in games, I came up with a couple of lists of maybe examples people would want to check out that have a little bit of A-Life in them and some ideas that someone could make a game using A-Life that maybe some people have done, maybe some people haven't. I don't know if you want to, uh, to get into that or not. Most certainly. And in addition to actually saying them, if you can provide them to me in an email and I'll include them in the show notes. Sure. Okay, well, some examples from some A-Life casual games. I just found one called Fungus, which is essentially Conway's Game of Life, but it takes out the grid and you've kind of got these uh, growing circles that are supposed to be fungi that link to each other with lines, and that those are the connections. But it's the same rules as Conway's life, but it has some strategy where you could kind of pull and, and drag little dots around and try to grow the fungus and keep it from dying out. That's a little fun little time waster kind of, of game. I know a big game a while ago was Insane Aquarium, which was one of the last great Java games where you were raising goldfish, and there were some components there where you starting to keep an ecosystem alive. There's fish that will breed, not necessarily breed, but they have, have young, and there's predators you can put in there. There's a game on Congregate called Infect, Evolve, Repeat, which is just you control viruses and move them around, drag them onto red blood cells, and they replicate. Um, a lot of these are just sort of not real A-life, just sort of things spawning that there's no evolution going on, but there's you know reproduction. An interesting game I found for downloads called Warning Forever, and that is sort of a, uh, you're a spaceship fighting a giant boss-type spaceship that 
every time you defeat it, it comes back and has adapted to your attack techniques. And there's some of the more non-casual games people are probably familiar with, Black and White, uh, Harvest Moon, which doesn't have a lot of A-Life components, but it's a concept that I think works with, would work really well with an A-Life game, where you're, you're trying to grow and nurture a environment, and also strategically harvesting, you know what I mean? Certainly. Um, I think you could, you could take a game like Zabiath and put a nice uh, interface on it and actually make it a game about trying to you know, increase the biomass in an environment. And you need to raise money in order to do this. In order to raise money, you have to harvest animals, plants, things like that. So there's games, game ideas there. Um, Simant is a game that I loved growing up and has really got all of a thinking about cast and how cast evolved. It was one of the uh, inspirations for Trial of Us. But as far as uh, room for A-Life and casual games, I came up with a list. You could make a farm game, which, like I said, something like Harvest Moon or, or a game where you've got an environment growing animals, maybe they really are already evolving, plants, ecosystem, and you have to harvest strategically. There's sort of the Pokemon-style game. You could add actual selective breeding and real genes to a game like that, sort of a cockfighting game where you have to selectively breed your creatures and gain money and go through generations. Then there's, say, sort of an extermination game like, like Trilobos or maybe some game to do with zombies or something like that, where you've got the player pitted against the evolving population of foes. And really, I think any sort of RTS game, if you look at games like StarCraft or WarCraft, from you take a step back and look at the workers and their relationship with the command center or whatever, it looks like an ant colony. And I think that there's room for a real-time strategy game that maybe instead of, uh, you know, you've used your resources to research pre-created units, you maybe would have to actually breed, selectively breed new units with sort of a real genome and uh, use those. So those are just some ideas I came up with. Oh, that's fascinating. Are you familiar with the game Capitalism at all? That sounds familiar. It's like an early 90s game, and the thing that always fascinated me about that was that you had farms and mines and things that you could put all over the, you know, the world. And you also then manufactured things from those. And there was a transport cost component, there was a manufacturing component, and then you sold them to supermarkets, which you could also hold. And there was a branding component where you could brand things exclusively and sell them exclusively. And it was an interesting game, although it was mainly on the kind of sales end. I could think that there was there would be almost an environmental capitalism where you looked at renewable energy as well as just basically robbing the environment and these kind of things. Sure. Well, God games are really popular thanks to Maxis. And, and I know that games like Sim Earth, which didn't have a lot of game component, had that sort of idea where you're there as a steward taking care of the environment. But I definitely could see a game that tries to, to balance those two ideas where you need to harvest resources, but do it in such a way that the, it doesn't it's not devastating. Fascinating stuff, Joe. Any final words for this chat? Well, uh, you can come to my website. It's uh, scarybug.org slash trilobots or trilobots.sourceforge.net check out Trilobots. I'm continuously updating it right now. There's information on sort of the, the paradigms I'm using in the game, and I'd appreciate anyone leaving some feedback and trying the game out. I'd be interested to uh, talk to people on the Spyta chat or contact me personally about anything we talked about today. And One would hope that the listeners to this podcast would be slightly more pleasant than your average angry 15-year-old. Yes, well, as I said, a uh, Trilobots is not ready for prime time and it's not going on Congregate for quite a while, maybe uh, never. Well, thank you very much, Joe, for the opportunity for chatting with you this evening. Thank you.